and welcome to the Dad Nobody Wants to Listen to You About New York podcast. And this week, the podcast is about crime in New York City, and I'm calling it Crime, What Crime? Crime in New York is almost interchangeable. Where would we be without crime? The New York City crime movies like Serpico, The Naked City, Midnight Cowboy, Run All Night, Brooklyn's Finest, The Godfather, Goodfellows, Taxi Driver. All of these films have glorified in some way crime in New York. So crime and New York are completely synonymous. In this podcast, I want to look into crime in New York, not only from a personal perspective, but also to look at the history of crime and why New York seems to be such a hub for it. I want to look at things that have been done over the years to improve the crime statistics, as well as look at why is crime at the moment seemingly out of control. As usual, please just don't take my word for it. Go and do your own research. But to make life a little easier for you, I've done quite a lot of research and I will just share with you immediately some headline-grabbing figures. Felony assaults in the Bronx have gone up 22.8% since 2011 compared to 2022. Murders have actually gone down by 2.4% and shooting victims have gone down by 8.7%. But again, I will explain to you later why those figures might be slightly distorted. Rape has gone up 15%, robbery 43%, and overall crimes have gone up 32, nearly 33%. So surges in robbery, burglary and other crimes have driven crime in New York City way higher than it was before. However, Mayor Eric Adams, who did campaign on a promise to improve public safety, he said at this press conference in front of the police at the police department headquarters that the city had made amazing progress and he was saying how well the police had done in gun arrests and how they've managed to rid five of the boroughs of illegal guns and drugs. Still, he did admit that uh, these major crimes, such as robberies and burglaries and grand larcenies, had increased the overall crime to 126,000 from 103,000 reported crimes in 2021. He he admitted that retail theft uh, and subway safety are still among his top priorities. Highlighting declines in murders and shootings compared to the previous year is all well and good, but if you actually look at similar drops in US cities, um, it's not that impressive. But criminologists and experts do caution about reading too much into data from just one or two years. It's been well known now that crime rates are quite cyclical. If you use statistics to affect the way the police department works, then really things are not going to improve very quickly. But some statistics, 189,000 arrests citywide in 2022, that's a 22% increase from 2021. 47,000 of those were for the most serious crimes of homicide, rape, robbery, assault, burglary and grand larceny and motor vehicle theft. The number of arrests linked to shootings and homicide rose by 12% from the year before. 
New York City saw the most gun arrests in 27 years. There were 4,627 of them last year. However, although there were 433 homicides last year, that was an 11% drop since 2021 and the fewest since 2019. There's been a lot of proactive work, such as moving dozens of cameras and thousands of police officers into the Bronx. But some are arguing that the drop in homicides is not due particularly to better crime control. Since the pandemic, the New York first responders have become experts at how to help people who are seriously ill. And a lot of credit has to be given to these first responders for saving people's lives so they don't become another homicide statistic. There were about 10,000 robbery arrests last year, and the police saw about a 37% increase in robberies in the first three quarters of the year. There was some improvement in the last three months. At least 20% of those arrested in robberies are under 18 years old. The subway system, and you would have heard my podcast about that, but there's a 30% in crime in 2022 over the previous year. Officers performed more than one and a half million train patrols in the subway last year, and arrests rose by about 47%. But all of this is statistics, and I think it's much more important to bring crime down to a human level. After all, it's a quality of life issue for people living in New York. And to make it really personal, I want to tell you about a story that happened to me in 1989 when I was working at the Westbury Hotel on Madison and 69th. On the night of April 19th, 1989, I was working till about 7pm running the hotel and I decided it was more than about time that I headed home to my small flat in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I lived on 88th and York Avenue. About the time that I was entering my small flat, Trisha Miley was leaving her flat and entering Central Park at 84th Street entrance just by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She wasn't much older than me. She was quite a successful professional working for Salomon Brothers in New York. I knew the company quite well because they had a major corporate account with my hotel. Trisha, as I said, entered at 84th Street and She went for a run up to 102nd Street and then she would cross and go from the East Drive over to the West Drive of the park. And a little before midnight, her body was found by two men in a ravine about 50 feet from the 102nd Street cross path. When Trisha was found, she wasn't conscious, she was barely alive and she was rushed to the hospital having been raped brutally beaten, and was in a coma. The doctors said that they'd never seen anyone in such a bad state. Her left eye had been crushed in, and the force of the blow to her face was so strong that her eyeball had exploded into the thin plates of her orbital floor. She had several skull fractures. She had deep lacerations. The doctors weren't sure whether she would live or die. And so there was a massive manhunt going on to find out who did this. To be honest, this probably never has been and maybe never will be such a lot of publicity about somebody being attacked in Central Park. The media went crazy. Everybody wanted to find out who had done this. It was such a shock 
mainly probably because it was a young, pretty woman, white woman, who was nearly killed on an ordinary jog through Central Park. The police went mad trying to find who was responsible. It had been reported that night that like 40 or 50 teenagers, probably mainly black and Latino, had been running around Central Park threatening people, trying to rob people and harassing them. After some considerable time, they did actually manage to find some teenagers, Kevin Richardson, Yusuf Salam, Raymond Santana, Corey Wise and Anton McRae, and they eventually became known as the Central Park Five. They had no real evidence, the police didn't have DNA evidence, they just had circumstantial evidence that these people were in the park running amok. Trisha Miley was in a coma for about a week in the hospital before, thank goodness, she finally opened her eyes. It was about that sort of time that I became far more familiar with the family because my company decided to offer complimentary rooms to Trisha's family who came to New York to be by her bedside. And over the course of a few weeks, I got to know the family quite well. I watched the outpouring of grief and terror and anger in New York at the time. And I still remember Donald Trump, who at the time was just a real estate magnate and also um, owned the Plaza Hotel in New York where my wife was working. He would make big statements and put newspaper ads out on the, uh, in the press to try to get people to feel that the death penalty should be brought back in New York for these people, for these five people, and that they should be hated and they should be hounded. One of the most difficult parts of this case is that Trisha Miley doesn't remember what happened to her that night. On one hand, she said, thank God she doesn't because she doesn't have recurring nightmares. But on the other hand, it made the next phase of this debacle more frightening for her. Because she couldn't remember if there was one or if there was many people, she had to rely just on the evidence that was found by the doctors at the time. They found evidence that they believe showed that there was more than one person. They had different size hand marks that had left prints on her body. And the injuries it received were not consistent with just one lone attacker. The guys who, or the Central Park Five, as they were known, were all 16 years old at the time. And in the end, they were all convicted of rape, assault and robbery in the attack of Miley. And although at the time everybody thought justice had been done, a serial rapist came forward sometime later and admitted that he was the person who had done the work. Matthias Reyes is known now to have been one of the worst criminals New York has ever had. He is also known as the Eastside Slasher and the Central Park Rapist. And he's a Puerto Rican serial rapist and murderer, obviously now most known for the rape and brutalization of Trisha Miley in 1989. This, of course, in the end led to wrongful convictions for the Central Park Six, as they were known later on. These six men of marginalized races who were wrongfully tracked and persecuted because numerous youths were causing disturbances at the scene of the crime. When Reyes confessed to the rape in 2002, long afterwards, and these young men had spent many, many years in prison, huge efforts went underway for these six men to be successfully exonerated and freed. And in the end, the city paid them $40 million compensation. At this point, 
Many civil rights groups and a lot of New Yorkers felt justice had finally been done. The young men were wrongly convicted. The right person who'd committed this heinous crime was in prison, unlikely to escape, although, yes, he's due for parole this year, but highly unlikely to be given it. But Trisha Miley, she's not so happy. She spent the years since, 34 years, becoming a motivational speaker, and she's also been very, very forthcoming about her concerns with how justice has turned out. She always felt that there was more than one person involved because of the unidentified DNA. That, of course, was sold when they caught Reyes. But she also knew from looking at the various documents, some of them, of course, were never released by the police until much, much later, that the evidence seemed to show that there was more than one attacker. So who were these other attackers? Of course, District Attorney Robert Mortineau He withdrew all the charges against the Central Park Five in 2002. All their convictions were vacated. But, you know, it's been well known that many people feel this is unfair, that these people were in Central Park and they were there to apparently beat up and intimidate people. And yet they end up with millions of dollars and that they're heroes and civil rights icons. And in some ways you'd think that's pretty appalling. And so... Here we are at one of the most important things to say about crime in New York. Very often it seems to follow racial lines. Disproportionate amounts of black and Latino people are found to be responsible for the majority of crime in New York. White people generally are fearful of crime in New York and think it's due to black and Latino people. And it causes fear and resentment in the communities. But I tell you this story because it's a personal story. I, I, was, I got to know the parents of Trisha, uh, and quite movingly, um, something personal again happened to me because I was talking to them in the lobby of the hotel one morning in 1989. I think it was May the 1st. And um, yes, I, I got to know them quite well, and I arranged, I think, to see them the next day. And the next day, I, I was again talking to them in the lobby, and As they left, I got waved over to reception with a telephone in the air. In those days, we didn't have mobile phones. And the receptionist said, it's your father from the United Kingdom wanting to speak to you urgently. Uh, I thought, that's unusual. So it was, you know, probably quite uh, late in the day for him. I took the phone call and he told me that my brother had been involved in a car incident and was dangerously ill at Addenbrooke's Hospital in England and, you know, just wanted to let me know. (laughs) Well, of course, the first thing I thought about doing was getting on the next plane. So in a way, I I left it all behind and I was sort of out of circulation back in the United Kingdom for three or four weeks while my brother luckily did slowly recover from his injuries. It was also during this time that I found out my wife was pregnant with my son, So for me, that whole period was a bit of a blur. But like many people in New York, they certainly remember where they were in that period in 1989 when the Central Park jogging scandal hit. What I experienced firsthand was, if you like, almost the mass hysteria whipped up by the media about crime in New York at the time. Crime hasn't always been as bad as it was in the 1980s. But I still remember also, of course, the case of Bernard Goetz, the subway shooter, 
that uh, was the story of a young man who went onto a New York subway tube and he felt very intimidated by a, a group of young men coming towards him and, and hassling him. And he actually took out his gun and he uh, shot them all and in quite a sadistic way. Uh, I think in one case he even felt that one of them wasn't injured enough and went to almost finish this guy off. And had it not been for the fact that he'd used all the bullets, um, and he actually said this himself, he would have fired again. And in the end, Bernard Goetz went to court, but he was let go. Um, people felt in the end that he had been threatened and he had a perfect right to defend himself. I think he was given some form of very, very minor punishment for having an unregistered firearm. A few months ago, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, announced a plan to combat gun violence in New York City, and he was pledging millions of dollars in state initiatives aimed, aimed at preventing gun crime. The initiatives would put most of their focus onto the six precincts in Bronx and Brooklyn, where nearly a quarter of the city's shootings took place last year. But the reason why I call this podcast Crime, What Crime? With a little nod to the famous Supertramp album, Crisis, What Crisis? Is that Mayor Adams was very keen to say at his recent press conference that New York remained the safest big city in America. But people were saying to him, how can he square that reality with what's actually going on, with all the random acts of violence that people basically believe they're, they're not safe? His argument, which is an interesting one, is that crime is nowhere near as bad as how it's perceived to be. And he blamed the media and people's perceptions for making out that crime was much worse than it really was. He had that feeling that people wake up in the morning and they read the newspaper and they read about a murder or a robbery. And then they perceive that they're living in an extremely dangerous city. There was a recent mass shooting on the subway and the mayor was asked, you know, what did he think of it all? And he said that he'd never witnessed a crime at this level before, which seemed particularly strange since he'd been working as a transit cop in the early 1990s when the murder rate was more than four times higher than it is at the moment. But he feels that the blown up coverage of these horrific events plays in your psyche. And I have to say, having witnessed it firsthand, with the uh, Central Park jogger incident. I think there's a lot of truth to that. A recent poll said 70% of those living in New York felt that they were concerned about becoming a victim of crime, and 17% that they'd even bought a firearm or some form of self-defense in the last 12 months. That's nearly twice the rate of those who were surveyed in upstate New York. I think that part of the problem is that people have this sense of being potential victims, mainly because they feel that no one is in charge and that somehow the city is in freefall. And this probably has, in the past, turned into a real breeding space for vigilantes. This was certainly the case at the time of Bernard Goetz on the subway. I think 3% of those people interviewed in the 80s, or 1984, said that they were carrying a gun. Now, this is in strict um, disobedience of New York City gun laws where guns are not allowed. But here we are back in 2023 and New York City subway crime, according to the New York Post in October this year, 
is soaring because no one is bothering to prevent it anymore. Last week, Daniel Enriquez became New York City's latest random crime victim. He was shot in the chest at close range and killed as he traveled from Brooklyn to Manhattan for a mid-morning brunch. Another story that got a huge amount of play in the British media was a British 41-year-old 40, father was on a weekend trip to New York with his wife and is said to be lucky to be alive after masked gunman shot him in the leg and arm in Brooklyn. Apparently, it was a case of mistaken identity. This, of course, led the newspapers to say that crime in the Big Apple has risen in virtually every category compared to the previous year, and the statistics seem to be showing that despite Mayor Ed Adams repeatedly claiming his campaigns to resolve the issue have been successful, things are going out of control. And the New York City Police Department, which released its annual roundup of crime over the past year, really revealed figures that were up in virtually every category, despite recent assertions from the mayor. So you ask yourself, why is the mayor in such denial? Why do people always want to maintain that crime is falling when in fact it's rising? I actually looked up the statistics for myself. Now, these are really, really difficult statistics to look at because New York City do publish them, but they're all in a database format and there are millions and millions of records and you have to set up all sorts of searches and it's really far too complicated for me. But the information I did manage to find that arrests have actually gone down from 2011, 38,000, to December 22, to 15,000. So arrests have gone down. But is that the whole story or is that just lying with statistics? I've read many pieces saying that it's just question statistics because there are less arrests for a whole bunch of reasons. There are police, less police on the streets. Uh, the amount of police leaving the police force is huge. Uh, people aren't bothering to arrest people anymore because they don't want to go through all the paperwork of having to arrest people. Um, people are just given a verbal warning. And also, for instance, in the subway, I saw it for myself where you may have four or five police standing there chatting away on a mobile phone together and people jumping over the turnstiles, not paying their tickets, and the police don't do anything about it. I asked a few people when I was in New York in July, I said, what's going on with the police? They don't seem to do anything at all. They say, well, no, because if they actually do stop someone and arrest someone, um, a person is usually Hispanic or black, they will probably be in trouble because they'll be done for racial prejudice or profiling. And that's a, a big issue at the moment in New York. New York City has a uh, profiling problem. I think in the past, whether previous mayors have been successful or not, there's been all sorts of aggressive campaigns of stopping and searching and frisking and trying to stop people before they commit crimes. Mayor Adams has created a new special task force, uh, one that again has received a lot of criticism because these people are patrolling areas of high crime for instance, um, areas of the Bronx. And they catch mainly Hispanic and black people, 97%, and arrest them. And this is considered to be just racial profiling and not a real reflection of the crime itself. But so hist historically, the stopping and searching does seem to have an effect on reducing the amount of small crime. But it's extremely unpopular because it disproportionately targets black and Hispanic people. 
Another issue in New York at the moment, like a lot of cities around the world, shoplifting retail crime is getting out of control, mainly due to the cost of living crisis. And in New York, thousands of crimes have been committed by just 327 people, it was found. And these very same people get arrested and get turned around very, very quickly in the criminal justice system, and they're back on the streets again uh, committing crimes. And in some cases, some of these people have committed a thousand crimes and are still not in jail. So you have a political system that wants to talk tough about crime, and the media then will criticize them for being too tough about crime when they do things like stopping and searching. It's a no-win situation because if you as the mayor, an ex-New York City transit cop who should know quite a lot about crime and how to prevent it, make a stand that you want to try to reduce petty crime or subway crime in New York City, and you introduce things that you think will make an effect, inevitably the press are going to kill you by saying that what you're doing is unconstitutional and unfair and discriminatory. I think related to my various other podcasts on health and homelessness, a lot of the crime that exists in New York is done by people who are at the very low end of society. Usually these poor kids who are probably 16 or younger sometimes have been accosted or sexually assaulted themselves or had crimes on themselves as well. And a recent example, of course, is this young man, Andrew Abdullah, who's a 25. He has been identified as the suspect of the most recent terrible shooting on the New York subway. And, you know, he's got a criminal history that stretches back to his teen years. He's had 19 arrests. He served a state sentence for previous gun crime. And just six months after parole, he was found carrying a loaded gun. And they released him without bail. And like many of these people who are at the lower end of violence, they end up going all the way up to homicide. Another similar case resembles that of um, Marshall Simon. The, a 61-year-old mentally ill homeless man shoved Michelle Go to her death from a Times Square subway platform in January. And Simon had a long criminal history, serving a state prison sentence for robbery. He was a mentally ill homeless man. He was well known to the state and local mental health officials. And even the hospital psychiatrists half a decade ago um, predicted that he would someday push a woman to her death. Yet he too was free to get his behavior escalating until that awful prediction came to pass. Early, early this year, just after New Year's Day, three teens allegedly surrounded a, a fellow passenger at, at Fordham Road subway station and he was so menaced and, and he eventually fell on the tracks and a bystander, a 36-year-old, he tried to intervene and he was killed by a train and the three teens that had entered the subway system without paying their fare, going through the exit gate, as most of these people do, got away. Uh, an assertive police presence at the train station may have stopped them from doing it. Another 24-year-old was shot and killed at Jamaica Centre in Queens last month. And he was a known subway swiper, they call them, someone who procures unlimited ride metro cards and then uses them illegally to sell passengers' cut-price entrance to the transit system. I mean, nobody knows really 
why he was killed, but he was probably involved in some sort of territorial dispute um, over the selling of subway swiping t cards. And this seems to happen quite a lot as well. So really the shame is that these things are still going on, but it's not right that the political people say that there is no crisis in crime. If you continue to ignore it and deny it, you can't any longer pretend the ongoing surge in homicides and other violent crime and say that it's just a statistical aberration. There is a type of policing in New York. It's nothing new, but it's called broken windows policing. And this is where the police go after small, low-level crime. Uh, so far this year, I think they've given nearly 10,000 non-arrest summonses to people for these small crimes. The idea of it is that it's supposed to try to deter people from from committing further crimes. But you you often wonder if this works. I mean, many of these citations are for fare evasion and other subway rule breaking. But they're just worthless pieces of paper because it's over 80% of these summonses are never actioned and no fines are ever imposed. The way that they're almost lying with statistics about arrests and they say that arrests have gone down is just because nobody is arresting anymore for, say, these transit system crimes. In April 2022, there were, I think, 689 arrests below the 2019 level of 993. But recently, police stopped a 22-year-old man in a Brooklyn subway for fare evasion and even found him with a loaded gun, but the judge still let him go. So honestly, if you're a would-be criminal, if you don't think you're going to face any form of sanction or jail, it's probably not surprising that you're going to carry on committing crimes. In April, 98 violent felonies took place on the subway. That's up from 66 in April 2019, despite ridership being just 60% of the pre-COVID normal. This summer, as with most summers in New York City, it's faced a surge in gun crime. And really, I think what's shocked New Yorkers more than anything is that the, the mayor campaigned on public safety and reducing gun crime. But most people feel that we haven't learned in New York from our past battles with violent crime. Even though the city is safer than the 1980s and the 1990s, critics say that the, the mayor is falling back on the so-called you know, tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime strategies that have failed in just about every city of the world. The mayor faces calls to defund the police movement. This is happening in many cities in America. People are not trusting the police anymore. People feel that the police have failed. New York City policemen are frightened now to go towards this broken window style policing of stopping small crimes and particularly trying to go after the people in those areas where crime is at its greatest because it's up against the Black Lives Matter protests where clearly people are very disturbed that young black men are being disproportionately even killed. The aggressive policing used under Mayor Michael Bloomberg was ruled unconstitutional in 2013. Uh, and of course, people who liked that style of policing felt that was credited as the decline of crime between the 90s and the 2000s. And they felt that if you shift to a lighter touch of policing, it would lead to more violence. Before the pandemic, 
the number of police officers hadn't declined, funding hadn't declined, and New York retained probably the largest and most well-funded police force in the world. But then the pandemic struck and gun violence has begun to rise. And if you talk to people, they will say that, yes, I mean, in these neighborhoods, which already have very high needs, when you take away resources, when people have problems with access to food, when kids can't go to school, where there are issues with education, issues with housing, all the things that I've talked about in these podcasts, it really creates this recipe for community violence. Mayor Adams is proposing to increase the New York Police Department's budget by more than $180 million to $5.6 billion. Actually, the New York Police Department's total budget is more than $11 billion, counting pensions. But then they're the critics. They say that the city's pumping all this money into policing, but it's not working. So many of the successes in previous years, such as under the Mayor de Blasio, involved getting different organisations to help reduce crime by either finding city-funded work for young people or societies and clubs that young people could go to in order to keep them off the streets. But the trouble, of course, like everything else, is that funding has declined. And I think it's gone down as much as 100 million for some of these small organisations in the last few years. So typically, if you can't offer this sort of 24-hour service anymore, what are these people going to be doing? It tends to increase violence down the line because there's less community efforts to reduce it. I also read an article that indicated that more police are leaving the police force than ever before. Some are leaving even before they're entitled to their pensions. This is for a bunch of reasons, but not least if police are being held up as the bad guys, it's not very motivating to go to work and be abused all day. Also, people are finding that, you know, the cost of living is huge in New York, as I've discussed in previous podcasts, and being a policeman is not the most well-paid job in the town. So there are other ways that people can get much better paychecks. I saw that for myself with all the growth of these massive apartment complexes. All of them have at least 15 to 20 usually recently retired policemen working there. And I'm sure they're getting more money than they would as a New York City cop. Mayor Adams hasn't really helped matters that much, as recently he was making a speech criticising groups of police standing around talking on the telephone and chatting. And he has now made it an official policy of the New York Police Department that this must not be allowed and that police are not allowed to gather around and talk to each other unless it's about genuine policing. All of this is probably admirable, and as an ex-policeman, he should know. But it's not motivating police to feel that they're empowered in their own lives and to do things to make the city a safer place. I think you you need to let the police be police. You need to let them actually do proper policing. When I was there, I didn't see one single policeman walking around the streets on the beat, so to speak. There's no street patrol. You'll occasionally hear the sound of some big SUV uh, honking its horn, trying to get in front of other drivers on the roads. Um, Once in a while, you might see a bunch of police coming out and going into a shop because somebody's called them for um, retail theft. And as I said, you'll probably see a bunch of police gathered together in every subway station, uh, folded arms, talking to each other, some eating, some drinking their coffee. Um, but not doing an awful lot of crime prevention at all. 
So it seems to me that there's some big management problem going on in the New York Police Department and it does need to be solved. But equally, there needs to be proper targeted uh, catching of criminals at all levels. It's being seen in many countries of the world, most prominently in London, where crime is reaching epidemic proportions as well, mainly knife crime because guns are not so common there as they're not legal. But people in England are getting exasperated because retail theft is, is tremendously high. People are having their watches ripped off their arms. Pe burglaries are going through the roof. And usually if you call the police, the chances of them coming are very, very slim. And in many cases, if you've had your house burglarized, the police won't bother coming anymore because it's not a crime that they feel that is taking their priority. This is the same in New York. The whole way that the police operate and the way that they prevent, detect and solve crimes needs to change. The public need to feel that they're safe, that their houses are safe, that the streets are safe. I want to end the podcast by reading you something from the New York Post. And this was written by Hannah Myers, who is the director of policing and public safety at the Manhattan Institute. She is a great critic, as I apparently am now, of the way statistics are being used not only to lie but to cover up the real state of crime in New York and give this impression of crime, what crime? It's well known that so many of the crimes are done by reoffenders, but in the statistics are they counting each incident if an individual reoffends multiple times? No. They account whether or not a person reoffends as opposed to the number of times he reoffends in total. In her recent piece, she said, This city used to care about intelligent, informed policy making because we cared about actual New Yorkers' outcomes. Now we only care about whose version of reality sounds or feels the least racist and go with whatever policy they insist on. The city achieved truly meteoric declines in violence, imprisonment and the use of police force by letting the data tell us nuanced, sometimes unintuitive stories. If we keep muffling that data, we will never see those wins again. Mm -hmm.